there is a lot more going on in those two passages that Nathan just read than I'll attempt to, to uh, address this morning. But both passages set before us things that we need to know if we are going to do rightly the single most eternally useful thing that human beings will ever do as agents of God between now and the time our Lord Jesus returns. And that is to be instruments of God through which he gives uh, eternal life to the dead. I'm confident that every person in this room who believes in, in Jesus wants to be one of those instruments uh, and, and wants to be useful to God in the salvation of other people. But, but uh, many Christians find themselves, they find themselves useless or largely useless to be, uh, to be instruments of God when it comes to putting the gospel in front of their friends and their co-workers and their family members and the person at the checkout line and the person at the tire store and whoever it is that they come into contact with. They struggle and they, don't, they just don't see themselves being used by God in that way. I believe that a part of that real or perceived uselessness traces back to a failure to understand our true place in God's saving work in the hearts of other people. And that's what, that's what I'm asking God to, to clarify for all of us through his word this morning. Uh, first thing I want to note from this passage is that God uses, from Romans 10, God uses flawed agents to proclaim the gospel. He uses agents, but it's us. <laughs> And so we, we bring a lot, of, a lot of problems to that table. Romans 10, 13, God says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's, that statement, call upon the name of the Lord, goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, after the fall, after Cain's murder of Abel, after the proliferation of sin. And then Adam and Eve bear a child called Seth, and it says at that time men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And you see that phrase many, many times in Scripture. To call upon the name of the Lord is to come and seek God, acknowledging who God is. It, it is found that the idea of calling on the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord is his character, it's who he is. And so if you call on his name, you're coming to him acknowledging who he is for praise, for request, for any, any kind of thing. And so he says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he says, he, immediate, he immediately follows that with four questions. How then shall they call upon him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. And those first two questions aren't too hard to understand. No man will bother calling upon the name, the character of a God that he doesn't trust. If that character is not trustworthy. Belief comes before dependence. And no man will believe in a God whose character is unknown to him. So hearing comes before faith. And those are both powerful ideas that we could develop all day long. But, but the last two questions bring us directly to the matter of human agency. How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Now when you hear, when you hear the question, how shall they hear without a preacher? <laughs> you might think the obvious answer is, well, God could tell them himself, Right? And he could, of course. But as we've clearly seen from God's word over the last couple of weeks, God says that that's not how he generally does things. Especially when it comes to advancing his kingdom on earth. To spreading the gospel of Christ. 
The very first chapter of the Bible tells us that God created human beings to be his agents and image bearers to do his work, his way, in his creation because we've been made in, in many ways like him. And that includes his work to seek and save the lost. At the end of Matthew 9, when Jesus sent out 70 men, quote, as lambs in the midst of wolves, to go ahead of him into the cities into which he was about to come, he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Whose harvest? God's harvest. And who sends the laborers into God's harvest? God does. It's no accident that Jesus said that to men whom he had just chosen to be his workers, his, his harvesters. <laughs> and, and they weren't necessarily going to see the harvest yet. They were going to be they were going to be used by him to prepare the field a little bit. Um, and so one of the things that points out to me is if you, I've always heard it said, be careful what you ask God because he might give it to you. And, and this tells me, be careful what you ask God because you might be the answer. Just before Jesus ascended into heaven after his resurrection, he said to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Judea and in Samaria, in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the remotest part of the earth. So here, beloved, is God's game plan for evangelism as he has made it known. It's very simple. God saves lost men, women, and children purely by grace through faith, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God usually delivers that gospel to the lost through his redeemed human agents. And we are those agents. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, jars of clay. And if you keep reading that chapter, 2 Corinthians 4, you find out that these jars of clay are afflicted and weak and even dying. And then, and, and, and the, the question is, what is it, what is it that, these, uh, that these vessels bear? Well, he tells us, <laughs> we bear the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, why did God choose such weak and unimpressive vessels as you and me to deliver such glorious, life-giving knowledge? Well, Paul tells us exactly why in the same verse where he talks about earthen vessels. He says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. Beloved God it's not, it didn't slip by God that we're not very great instruments. It, it didn't, it, it's not something that God just has to kind of put up with that we're still struggling with the world, the flesh, and the devil, and that we're not fully sanctified yet. This is all his, this is all his agenda. This is his way of doing things. He chose to use the miserable likes of us to draw people out of death into life. And isn't that marvelous? Isn't that, isn't that marvelous? He's been doing that all along. <laughs> we have this treasure in jars of clay in order that the surpassing greatness of the power may be him and not us. We have the greatest job in the world. We are agents of the living God, and we bear the message of eternal life with God through faith in Christ to people who are as enslaved to sin and darkness as we all once were. And our success in that task has nothing to do with us. It's all God. God uses the miserable likes of us, you and me, to bear 
the life-giving gospel to lost sinners, and the most foundational thing that you and I need to know about our role in evangelism becomes quite clear in the very first verse of Romans chapter 10. And that is that agents don't save anyone, God does. The Apostle Paul, speaking with heartfelt longing for the salvation of his fellow Jews, says, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. My prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Where does Paul go with his deep longing to see his, his fellow Jews saved? He goes to the only one who saves, lost sinners, the one who saved him. He prays to God for them. Nobody worked more diligently to appeal to the Jews throughout the Roman Empire to turn away from their man-centered notion of righteousness and to cling to the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone to make them acceptable in the eyes of God, clean in the eyes of God. In every city of the Roman Empire, Paul always went first to the synagogue and then to the Gentiles. But Paul knew very well that his words could not and would not bring about the salvation of even one of his, his beloved Israelites. His preaching and his writing and his life were never more than instruments in the hands of the one who does all of the saving. All right, so God uses flawed agents to proclaim the gospel. Agents don't save anyone. God does. And agents can't make people believe. And most people won't. This is really important for us if we want to be useful to God. We have to know this. In Romans 10, 16, Paul says, However, they, the Jews, did not all heed the glad tidings. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And that's, that's right out of Isaiah 53, 1. It's about the, the prophecy of the suffering servant, of, of the one who would, who would be the substitute, who would bear the sin, the guilt of Israel on himself so that, that Israelites might, might be saved. He's the guilt offering. And, and he says, but they didn't believe the report. And, and when he says, who has believed a report, he's making it clear that, that the belief was fairly scarce. There weren't many who accepted. It's not just many who will reject the gospel, friends. It's most. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. But the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And few, few are those who find it. But this is very important. God does not hold you or me responsible for another person's acceptance or rejection of Christ. God alone is sovereign over the heart of every person and he intends for us as his agents to know that. It's very freeing when we actually get that and order our approach to, to evangelism on the basis of that, that realization. Our task is never to argue anyone into the kingdom of God. I've said this to you before, but when I was a baby Christian and I was, I was just zealous as all get out to tell people about Christ, and I, when I found that they didn't listen to what I was saying, I, my whole thing was about knowing the Bible to sharpen my arguments. Guys, that's not the reason to know the Word of God. The reason to know the Word of God is to know the, the Lord of the Word. It's to know God. Not to argue better. The more I came to know God, the more personally and deeply I came to know God. You know, the more, the more natural it seemed to share Him with people. Now, I've struggled with it. Many times in my life, I've struggled with sharing the gospel. 
but let me continue. Our task is never to argue anyone in the kingdom of God. Any attempt to do so is the height of futility because you and I determine absolutely nothing when it comes to the salvation of anyone's soul. Romans 10.15 says, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. See, our task is simply to proclaim the best news ever to lost people. God's task, by his own declaration, is to use that proclamation as an instrument to save sinners. We're just agents, servants, ambassadors, messengers. All right, so how do mere agents do evangelism? If, we're not, if, if we can't save anybody, how do we go about this task? Well, first, we don't switch the method. And I, I can't emphasize this enough. Uh, in chapter 4 of J.I. Packer's book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, which was very influential in my life as a young believer, and I highly recommend it. I guess it's like third or fourth edition. I don't know. <laughs> He's with the Lord now. That book, uh, in chapter 4, he focuses on how knowing that God is sovereign in evangelism impacts the heart attitude with which we as his ambassadors do evangelism. And, and to set the stage, Packer first provides a, a marvelous snapshot of a lost soul's response to God's saving work through the preaching of the gospel. And the example, he takes the example from one verse of Charles Wesley's great hymn, And Can It Be? And many of you know this astounding verse. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Now, I should mention, guys, that Charles Wesley had a very different view than J.I. Packer did, and than I do, by the way, of the role of free will in an unbeliever's acceptance or rejection of Christ. But Wesley's own words prove <laughs> that he, like Packer, understood that the salvation of a soul is a miraculous and mighty work that God has to do. After quoting that beautiful verse about a heart brought out of enslaving darkness into the astonishing, life-giving light of God by God's doing, Packer said, we may not trust in our methods, however excellent we think them. There is no magic in methods, not even in theologically impeccable methods. He says, when we evangelize, our trust must be in God who raises the dead. He is the Almighty Lord who turns people's hearts and He will give conversions in His own time. Meanwhile, our part is to be faithful in making the gospel known. Sure that such labor will never be in vain. This is how the truth of the sovereignty of God's grace bears on evangelism. End quote. You and I need to be very clear about the difference between the agents of men's salvation and the cause of men's salvation. There is an awful lot of emphasis in modern Christian books and sermons on getting the method right. And there are quite a few books about this. Many modern advocates of friendship evangelism insist that the pre in the present cultural context, you are not going to see people come to Christ unless you first build friendships, and prove your trustworthiness to them before sharing the gospel. Now, if you think about that, that would mean that, that the approach that Peter took on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 was just plain wrong. Or at least it was culturally bound. Uh, and it won't work in today's setting. Now, if that's true, you and I should stop trying to share the gospel with, ever with more than one or two people at a time 
And we should certainly not share the gospel without first laying a whole lot of relational groundwork. But brothers and sisters, that makes the method more determinative than the message. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He didn't say if it's presented in the right context or to the right number of people or with the right relationship building in advance. That kind of, this, this scrutiny that's being paid to method makes method more determinative than the message and it makes agents more determinative than the cause. It's not the right tract or system or method or headcount that makes our efforts to share the gospel successful. It is the sovereignty of God over the souls of men. Now again, this does not mean that we aren't accountable to God for the words that we speak and for the heart attitude behind those words as we seek to share Christ with others. The last thing that any of us needs to do is to be is to be the impediment that keeps someone from the gospel. And sometimes, you know, we're capable of being quite an impediment. But there's a vast difference between being accountable and being determinative. I'll say it again. There's a vast difference between being accountable and being determinative. God is determinative because God is sovereign. The how that matters to God is not about method, it's about the heart. J.I. Packer goes on in his book to talk about the heart attitude that should characterize our work of evangelism because of our great confidence in the only one who saves <laughs> instead of in ourselves and our methods. And he writes that there are three ways that our confidence in God's sovereignty over the souls of men, women, and children should mold our attitude and approach to evangelism. And he's, the three are, we should be bold, patient, and prayerful. Bold, patient, and prayerful. First, he says we should be bold, because God hasn't been unclear. And I'm not quoting him, I'm summarizing, but God intends for his people to proclaim the gospel of Jesus to everyone, regardless of their response. And we have every reason to expect that God is going to work through our bold witness for Christ in the hearts of some, but not most. Packer says, you yourself, since you became a Christian, have been learning constantly how corrupt and deceitful and perverse your own heart is. <laughs> and before you became a Christian, your heart was worse. And then he says, yet Christ saved you. That should be enough to convince you that he can save anyone. If you don't believe that, you might have a way too exalted a view of yourself. <laughs> so persevere, he says, so persevere in presenting Christ to unconverted people as you find opportunity. You are not on a fool's errand. You are not wasting either your time or theirs. You have no reason to be ashamed of your message or half-hearted and apologetic in delivering it. You have every reason to be bold and free, natural, and hopeful of success. End quote. Knowing that we are agents of God in His work of seeking and saving the lost. Sorry, I got behind. There we go. Knowing that we're agents of God in his work of seeking and saving the lost and that he alone is the cause of their salvation should make us bold. That same confidence in God should make us patient. God has lots of agents. And he, he may use several of those agents to bring one person to faith in Christ. Um, and the process by which he turns the heart of a person from unbelief to belief in Christ might take a long time as we measure such things, not as God measures such things. 
In John chapter 4, after telling his disciples that the fields were white for harvest, Jesus said to them, For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Now that metaphor of one harvesting what another has planted implies time and it implies process. Like the process by which wheat goes from being an unplanted seed to a flourishing plant ready for harvest, so it is with the soul made ready by God. God alone is sovereign over that whole process, and it is a process. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul rebuked the Corinthian believers for creating divisions, cliques within the church in Corinth based on allegiance to one man or another. And Paul's rebuke to the Corinthians was all about the difference between the agents of God's work among men and the cause of that work, specifically in the matter of a man's salvation. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 4 through 7. When one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? Are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom, through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now, Paul couldn't be any clearer than he's being here. Neither the one who plants, nor the one who waters, nor the one who harvests is anything. Paul's not saying that we have no part in God's work. He's, he's saying we don't determine the outcome. It's God alone who gives life to the one who was lost and dead in sin, just as we all once were. That Verse 7 of that passage reminds me of Galatians 6.3 mentioned this one last week, and it cuts right to the chase on the matter of human agency. Let me do 1 Corinthians 3, 7 first, and then Galatians 6, 3. Listen to them back to back. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God causes the, who causes the growth. Galatians 6, 3, 4. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. The word anything and something is the same word in those two verses. When God uses you to correct another child of God, which is what Galatians 6 is talking about, you're merely God's agent in that work of correction. The impact of the correction is entirely in the hands of God. And, and you are every bit as unworthy of the grace of God as the person whose correction you're seeking. That would change a lot of people's mode of correction, if, again, if we really got that. You're just as unworthy of the grace of God as the person that he's using you to correct. It's never better than that. <laughs> In the same way, when God uses you to bring the light of Christ to a lost person, you are never more than God's agent in that work of salvation. If you and I ever think of ourselves as more than instruments in the hands of God, we're counting ourselves as something when we are nothing. So, any notion that we can rush the process is ridiculous. Regarding the call to be patient agents of God in the work of evangelism, Packer says, God saves in his own time. And we ought not to suppose that he is in such a hurry as we are. We need to remember that we are children of our age, and the spirit of our age is a spirit of tearing hurry. That great tearing hurry. He says, the idea that a single evangelistic sermon or a single serious conversation ought to suffice for the conversion of anyone who is ever going to be converted is really silly. If you see someone whom you meet come to faith through a single such sermon or talk, you will normally find 
that his heart was already well prepared by a good deal of Christian teaching and exercise of the Spirit prior to your meeting of him. And i got to say, in my experience, that's, that has so often been the case. I know Jonathan can bear witness to that. When, I, when, when my brother Jacob shared his, his experience and testimony with me, I didn't know this till he told me, but long before he came, they came to the United States, there was, a, there was a Christian that God had put in his life that had an impact on him. And, and this just happens so often. If we agree with God about his role and our role in evangelism, we should be bold, we should be patient, and finally Packer says we should be prayerful. The first verse of Romans 10 again is bedrock for our participation in the salvation of souls. Paul said, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer for them, the Jews, is for their salvation. If God alone turns the hearts of lost sinners to Christ, who should we be talking to about those lost sinners? The sent, that's us, are dependent on the sender. Utter, absolute dependence is at the very heart of God's design and intention for our assignment as his agents on earth. His redeemed agents. Our union with Christ is our lifeline and our supply line for every single thing that we do on this earth as agents and image bearers of God. It certainly is when it comes to the saving of souls. Psalm 127.1 again, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. What do dependent people do? They depend. And that means they pray. Our dependence on God, the, the way that that dependence finds its, its deliberate and focused expression in our daily lives is that we pray. And that includes all of our prayer, our praise, our adoration, our requests, our thanksgiving. We're acknowledging who's in charge. We're acknowledging who's sovereign. We're acknowledging who's, who is everything, all in all. We pray a lot. That you pray for unbelievers is more foundational to your role in their salvation than what you say to unbelievers. And we should pray for God's work in our own hearts as well, even as we pray for His, His work in the hearts of, of the lost. In Ephesians 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul said to his fellow saints, you guys pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in change in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Wow. The Apostle Paul was asking people like us to pray for him so he'd be bold. And so he'd speak, he'd open his mouth and speak clearly the gospel. If he needed to pray that, don't you think we do? So pray daily to the one who alone causes men to turn to Christ and to the one who alone makes his agents useful as his ambassadors. Pray for his work in the heart of your unbelieving neighbor, a co-worker, family member, and for his work in your heart. And keep praying. I prayed earnestly more times than I could ever count for my dear father's salvation for decades. And so did my mom. <laughs> God brought my dad to faith in Christ in the last year and a half of his life as he was battling a losing battle against lung and liver cancer. Dad died in a hospice bed at the foot of his and his wife's king-size bed at their house. And shortly before he breathed his last breath, he came out of a coma and he looked right in my mom's eyes and he said to her, I want you to know this. I love the Lord and I love you. That was the last thing my mom got to hear from my dad. 
But for many of my years of praying for my dad's salvation, guys, I was too afraid to confront him with his obvious unbelief. I couldn't bring myself to say to him that his, insist- his insistence that he was on good terms with God <laughs> didn't match up with either his words or his life. So for decades, I said nothing to my dad, but I said much to God about my dad. And God knew what he was doing the whole time. He he, he had to create the willingness and the boldness in me, and he had to do more than that. He had to create the humility in me to talk to my father with gentleness and with love. And God had to turn my dad's heart away from trusting in himself to trust only in Jesus to make him righteous in the eyes of God. God did all of that and a whole lot more. My dad finished well. And it was all God. It was all God. If if you want both you and that dear unbeliever that God put in your life to be ready when God determines to use you, First, be prayerful. There are two more facets. Those are the the three that Brother Packer listed. There are two more facets to the heart of a useful ambassador of Christ that I want to add to those three. Be hopeful and be gentle. Christ's agents have a living hope. In 1 Peter 3, Peter says, when we face unjust suffering for the sake of righteousness, we must not be intimidated or troubled by those who persecute us. And then he says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and fear. The fear is fear of God, not of people. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Now the context of that passage is very important, as context always is. If you yank verse 15 out of the context, you might come to the convenient conclusion that the only time that God intends for you to share the gospel is when someone says, tell me about your hope. But the passage is talking about what Christians do when we are persecuted for our godly behavior. When we're persecuted for our godly behavior. Whether we find ourselves in the defendant's chair in a courtroom or simply facing a condemning accusation from an unbeliever because we have held fast to godly behavior, and that includes our words, the real question that will be set before us at that point is, why are you doing what you're doing? What makes you do the things that you do? And the person posing that question probably won't have a clue that our doing is an outworking of our hope. And God says, you get to tell them that. You get to make that connection between your life and your words and your hope. The hope that Peter's talking about here is the same living hope that he talked about in chapter 1 of the same epistle. It is the forward-looking hope that legitimately belongs only to the redeemed children of God. It's the hope that 1 Peter 1.13 says is to be fixed completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's forward-looking. It means when he comes back. It's not hope of somehow finding well-being in your present circumstance or in any circumstance that you're going to be in between now and the time that Jesus comes back. Or the time that you go to him because you breathed your last here. (laughs) The hope, the living hope that we possess is an eager and confident expectation of the perfect well-being that only Christ's return will bring to us. Only us coming into the presence of him. Together with all of those who will dwell with him forever. 
Now, do you want to be used by God to open up opportunities for you to share the good news of forgiveness and eternal life in Jesus with lost people? Do you want that? Then give constant daily attention to where your hope is fixed. If you're looking around, your hope's in the wrong place. If you're looking forward and upward at Christ, fixing your eyes on the author and perfecter of faith, then your hope's in the right place. See, Christians, Christians live looking forward. And it affects everything that we do right here. It's not impractical. It's the height of practicality. <laughs> Give constant daily attention to where your hope is fixed. If your hope is in the inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and reserved in heaven for you and will not fade away, if your confidence that it is well with you is grounded completely in the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ, that living hope will be untouched by your circumstance and that living hope will profoundly affect what you do, how you treat others, and what you say to others. In every context of life and in every relationship. And by God's doing, that living hope will grab the earnest attention of some in whose hearts God is at work to draw them out of darkness and into light. Considering what's going on all around us here in the very memorable year 2020, it's worth mentioning that God's agents must not get into agonized conversations about the next election or the last election or the ravages of COVID-19 or the injustices of men against men. And the key word there is agonized. You and I should and certainly will have conversations with other people about all those things, politics and pandemics and social injustice and all of the things that perplex mankind here under the curse. But our side of those conversations must not be agonized. Our conversations with the lost and with one another are to be hope-filled conversations. Hope-filled conversations. And those conversations stand out like a sore thumb in this world. They're hard to find. When someone asks you how you're doing, how hard would it be for you to say something like this? Well, every day is full of challenges, but it is well with my soul because of Jesus. Or someone says, how are you doing? And you say, well, I deserve eternal judgment, but Jesus gave me eternal life. So I have to say I'm doing pretty well. Neither of those statements is the whole gospel, but either can be used by God as a seed or as water in the process of drawing someone to faith, even if the conversation never goes any further than that. Now, here's the kicker. Will statements like that make some people consider you to be a complete nutcase so that any further conversation with you should be avoided? Absolutely. Some people will come to that conclusion very quickly. Does that mean that those statements, such statements are useless to God and you shouldn't make them? Not at all. Beloved, if your fear or my fear of driving someone away from Christ or making things awkward keeps us from talking about Christ, you and I have way too exalted a view of agents. When others are venting their strident opinions about the upcoming election, how hard would it be for you or me to say something like this? I have strong convictions too about who should lead this country, and I vote. But Psalm 146 says, Do not trust in princes, in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. So my trust is not in whoever gets elected. My trust is in the king of kings. I've said that to a number of people 
and the conversations that What's, what's actually surprised me is that more often than not, the conversations that came out of that have been really good ones. Had one guy jump in his car and drive away at a, at a gas station. He and another guy were talking about politics and the, the last election. But you know what's cool? The guy that didn't drive away, we, st we sat there in the parking lot and talked for half an hour, and other people came and got gas and heard parts of that conversation. And, and by the way, some of the times that I've made statements like that to people, the cool thing that's happened is that it's just smoked out another believer. And then that believer and I have gotten to have conversations that other people got to hear. That happened in a, in a, in a line at Sam's not long ago at, when, when they were, you know, filtering who could come in all at once. And so we had these, this long line standing outside because of COVID. It, Got in a great conversation because I said, you know, yeah, this is all crazy, but it's well with my soul because of Christ. And this, this, this guy just says, yeah! <laughs> and, and we get to talking, and, and there's like four or five other people in, in the hearing of our conversation. All right. And, and I don't, I, I know I'm running late here. I don't at all want to represent myself as some paragon of evangelism. I am not. Guys, I struggle all the time with this. I fail more often than I succeed at, at, at opening my mouth. And I ask you to pray for me what Paul asks the believers to pray for him. That God would give me utterance in the opening of my mouth and that he would give me boldness in the proclamation of the gospel. Because unless he's at work in me, I'm nothing. Finally, Christ's agents are gentle. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and fear. The fear of God. Recognizing he's the one, he's the one who's in control. And that, that's so important. Good ambassadors of Christ are gentle because we know what we deserve from God, Right? Titus chapter 3, Paul was instructing Titus how to exhort the believers in Crete. And he said, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one. That means on Facebook too. To malign no one. To be peaceful, peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Why? He tells us why. For we also were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the, the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. But spend some time in that passage. That's just phenomenal. We give account for the hope that is in us, brothers and sisters, with gentleness. Because we know what we deserve from God and we know what God has given to us. The last thing I want to say is that Christ's agents don't just tell, they show and tell. As I mentioned earlier, 1 Peter 3 is much more about godly behavior than it is about just the gospel. And in chapter 2, Peter said that God has made us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Right after that call to act as God's agents in our proclamation, Peter instructs us to act as God's agents in our behavior. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, 
They may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. That was verses 15 and 16. Okay, so I'm about done here. We're agents, we're ambassadors of God and his work of saving souls. But we're agents who bear the image of Christ. The task of evangelism is not just to tell others about Jesus, it's show and tell. We've been commissioned to bear to this world not only the message of Christ, but also the manifestation of Christ, the presence of Christ. He adorns the message with the manifestation. And if those two contradict each other, it messes with the message. God has enabled us to do both. He's given us the message, the good news, the best news ever. And contrary to what some preachers might tell you, that message is simple and straightforward enough for a child to understand, believe, and share. I got to watch a child lead his parents to Christ when he was seven years old. He has redeemed his image in us so that we are able to show Christ off to others. That image is not yet fully restored, but by God's decree, that image is truly redeemed. In Ephesians 4, Paul instructs us to lay aside the old man, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and to be renewed instead in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new man, and listen to this, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. See, our nature is the new man, not the old one. Our true nature. The new creation that God has made us by bringing us into union with Christ. So it's not against our nature to display Christ in the world. It is our nature. So as the redeemed agents and image bearers of Christ, let's be diligent to put on and to show off our Savior and Master as we diligently proclaim Him to the lost. Dear Father, we want to be useful to You to fill Your kingdom with people who are every bit as resistant to the gospel as, as all of us once were. Make us bold, patient, prayerful, hopeful, and gentle bearers of both the message and the image of Christ. Use us to produce much fruit, Father, and make that fruit remain to the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus. It's in his name we pray.